You're listening to Four at the Back with Joe, Mazza, Neil and Pete. This week we're looking back at another one of our favourite football sides from the last 30 years. So pick up your Lucas Aid, lace up those Predators and go with Four at the Back. Wanderers are one of the grand old teams of English football. When the Football League started and Preston's Invincibles ran away with the first title, Bolton were there and they finished fifth. They spent more time in the top flight of English football than all their time in the other three divisions combined. They won the FA Cup four times, all of them back when winning the FA Cup still actually meant something. And that includes the famous White Horse final in the 1920s. Some of their former players, like David Jack, who was the first £10,000 player, and Naf Lofthouse, one of the great England strikers of his generation, loom large over the history of the English game. But when all of us started watching football, Bolton didn't look anything like the team that I'm describing. They fell out of the top flight in 1980, and by 1987 found themselves in Division 4. They fought back from that low point, but across the 1990s, Bolton were one of those sides that found themselves too good for the second tier, but not quite good enough for the Premier League. After their first two campaigns in the Premier League ended in relegation, they appointed a former player as coach, Sam Allardyce. They were promoted back to the top flight in his first full season in charge, and after two difficult seasons, in which they survived by four and then two points, Bolton would never again finish in the bottom half of the table under Big Sam. He'd go on to manage seven more Premier League clubs and one game as the England manager, which ended in disgrace, I think it's fair to say. But it's his time as Bolton that will guarantee him a place in the history of the Premier League. And conversely, Wanderers have never been the same since he left. So to cycle back to the beginning, gents, Allardyce inherited a talented team with players like Ida Johnson, uh, Jussi Jaskalain and, and, and Klaus Jensen. But they'd never survived. They never managed to sustain this kind of uh, spell in the Premier League until Allardyce comes in. What was it about the transition from Colin Todd to Sam Allardyce that transformed that talented team into one that could survive in the Premier League? I think the uh, the thing about Big Sam that people always forget is is how innovative he was tactically um, and actually how much of what Big Sam kind of uh, brought on board that actually is still being used by people like Sean Dyche um, to this day. I think, you know, Sam uh, embraced analytics in a way that perhaps um, a lot of English football managers, I mean, I, I emphasise English football managers, hasn't really uh, done before. He was one of the first people to pick up ProZone, heat maps, things like that. Um, and so, yeah, he was he was very much somebody that... that um, was a money ball manager, I guess. He, you know, to use the American term, he he made the most of what he, he had. He perhaps uh, took players that were maybe limited, but worked within the framework of what he wanted to do. I'm thinking about people like Kevin Nolan, who obviously took he took from from Liverpool's reserves, and you know he had a particular role in mind for Nolan as a box to box midfielder that would just break in and score goals, like a kind of um, I guess a poor man's David Platt, um, which is perhaps being a bit unfair to Kevin Nolan, actually. Um, and someone like Kevin Davis, who we picked up from Chesterfield, who, well, Southampton via Chesterfield, who was 
the kind of uh, of target man that kind of you could you know structure the whole team around. And when you have a solid keeper like Askelina, and then you later get a bit of stardust sprinkled in with the likes of Shurkaev and uh, JJ Kotcher amongst all these solid pros, then you know it's a formula that was able to keep them in division. Um, so although they had to sort of you know sell on people like Johnson, it turns out that that Sam has an idea of of how to kind of set up and stay in the Premier League longer term. I think he was he's probably one of the most innovative managers in Premier League history. I mean, we've talked on this uh, this podcast about Arsene Wenger and how he revolutionised the way that um, that players prepare for matches and their diets and things like that. Um, and this was a time where you know different systems were being introduced to the Premier League and Big Sam was, you know, it was it was mainly 4-4-2. But he was, he subscribed to this idea that um, similar to the, the sort of the England coaching manual from the 80s, but I think he understood it a lot better of getting players into what was called the position of, of most opportunity, um, of or maximum opportunity or whatever it was. Um, and he did, and so as, as Neil said, he he embraced Prozone. Um, I think he and I think Stephen McLaren was the other one who who really embraced sort of the analytic side of the game. But, but Big Sam used it to make his signings, to make his team selection, um, and it, he he so he took the sort of the he took the intangible out of out of football selection. He didn't tend to do things on on gut instinct and things like that, he would look at the numbers and more often than not, he got it right. Um, and so he would, and it, the other thing that I I remember of, uh, from that time is he tended to pick up players who he saw something in, but perhaps that they had something to prove. And so they go to Bolton, which, you know, it's, it wasn't the most sort of glamorous place in the world to go and play your football. Um, and you know, he he pulled off some real coups. I mean, Yuri Jorkaev was probably the, the first big one, but we'll talk about some others as well. Um, but he seemed to have an eye for uh, for a deal. Tarantino of football management. Yeah, yeah, like the whole John Travolta, yeah, reviving John Travolta's career. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, yeah I mean that was it. He, he 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 signed some, you know, really talented guys that were maybe at a you know crossroads in their career, or you know maybe guys who have been at big clubs their whole career, like Campo, and you know made them into you know a central piece of uh, of his club as opposed to you know a, a, a part-time you know a bit player for for a big club you know and the type of player that nobody's 100 percent sure how good they were and <laughs> turn them into something else which you know is quite kind of similar to what what um Wenger did with a few players i mean I suppose the thing to say about Allardyce is that he he, he was a professional footballer and, a, and, and a, I suppose a reasonable one, but he was never an elite Premier League footballer. And at one stage, he, he went to play in the North American Soccer League, um, I think in Tampa Bay. And that, that was the place where he picked up all this stuff about analytics and, and player conditioning and, and, and sports science because um, the club that he was playing for 
shared uh, training facilities and um, medical and physios and everything like that with the NFL team who who play there. Um, and Neil will be able to tell us which team it is in Tampa Bay. Buccaneers. There you go. <laughs> um, so so they were able to, um, to, to... So he was kind of exposed to that. And the the players, although technically they weren't on, on, on the level that, you know, players would be in, in England or uh, where he was used to, but physically, in terms of their conditioning, they were miles ahead. And by the time he comes to Bolton, he's worked out that players who run a certain amount more than their opponents tend to have a 70% chance, bigger chance of winning. It's, it's statistics like these that he, he, he lives by. And by and large, they come out right. It's just in the first couple of years, he can't quite get to that point. So it's by improving the squad and improving the conditioning and everything like that that he can get to that point. And then all of a sudden, you've got little old Bolton who, you know, little more than a decade previously were playing in the fourth tier of English football are suddenly threatening the Champions League. But he knows what he's doing from the start. He knows what he wants to achieve. There's no... Um, there's no sort of tinkering with with the system. He knows the system. It's the players he's got to get. It's kind of, what, you know... What, he certainly knows what uh, he's thought about from the start because they start to light up the first division almost from the minute he arrives. That's worth remembering. In that first half year, uh, they reach the semi-final of both cups and they're still in the first division. They only miss off in the out in the playoffs to Ipswich, who eventually get promoted. So it, it turns things around quite quickly. And that's with a side that were... As I say, they had Ida Johnson and Klaus Jensen, so they're not they're not devoid of talent. But there were also quite a lot of aging, jobbing pros, for the lack of a better description. You know, someone like Mike Whitlow, who played in for Leicester and was a solid pro for Leicester under Martin O'Neill. But I don't think any of us really remember him as being the most stunning defender that the Premier League has ever seen. Uh, Simon Charlton at Southampton, similarly, these were players in and around that side, and yet all of a sudden. That transition from sacking uh, Colin Todd to Allardyce, or, and I think they they take off immediately. As you say, it takes a couple of years for that to start to translate into Premier League success. But when it did, they really did start to upset the apple cart quite quickly. They were like the Wimbledon of the two thousands, I think. You know um, what Wimbledon were in the eighties, um, and sort of I guess up until the the, the mid 90s um Bolton kind of were here because you know they often didn't get the credit they deserved for the football that they played they were typecast as a long ball team they were a lot more than a long ball team you know the 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 management of of, of Sam was a lot more clever than people gave him credit for um he developed players just as some of those Wimbledon players went to to bigger teams and did very well later on um and he was able to, you know, kind of get the, you know, get the best out of some some genuine ageing superstars, which I guess Wimbledon never did have that side of things. But the the way in which they got under the skin of the elite, I think, is what really kind of um, makes them feel like the kind of Wimbledon story of this of this kind of, you know, decade between, two, you know, two, I guess, 2000 and 2010. Um, because they, 
they they genuinely just made those big teams very very uncomfortable and they often got very good results against the big teams against arsenal in particular of course that one uh, that they were stoked before they were stoke in that sense exactly i mean yeah, v- I hated vegas all got, absolutely hated them <laughs> vegas has got this long list of like uh, northern football clubs that he doesn't like because they you know pumped the ball in the box against them I suppose the thing to remember... Sorry, go on, Matt. I was going to say, I actually remember one game, my kitchen caught fire while we were playing Bolton. And it was weird because it was one of the only games we beat them in. We we were losing and we came back and won. And I didn't really care about my kitchen burning down because I was so happy that we'd actually beaten Bolton. I was just uh, thinking a minute ago, it's how much of the, the... and the stereotyping of the tactics comes into it. What's the difference really between the characterization of a long ball team and the kind of direct but difficult and intelligent cross field balls that this Bolton side used to play a lot of? I remember seeing them beat us at Villa Park under uh, under O'Neill. Um, a bit of a smash and grab in some senses, but you know they defended well and Yaskalina kept goal well. So between the two, you sort of say, well. Bolton going away, fair fair play to them. But uh, yeah, what's the what's the difference between that classic lump it up and the, what Bolton were doing? Do you think that kind of that's that kind of smarter play into the uh, angles that defenders hated? It was like Kevin Davis was such a clever player. I mean, he was. They were never as good when Kevin Davis didn't play because he was the. I think him and Nolan were the absolute sort of linchpin of the of of the system because a, a lot of Nolan's kind of runs in and around uh, the box at those angles you were talking about. You know, it was it was Davis that was making the space, um, and and so yeah, they would just kind of take funny those funny positions between the fullback and the centre half where you know the fullback doesn't want to doesn't want to come in and the centre half doesn't want to go out and you kind of had that, that that kind of channel that no one intended to work in. So yeah, it was it, in terms of creating scoring opportunities, it was it was it was very clever. And of course then think, you always had the opportunity for a weldy from you know from a coach or somebody. I think the other thing is is that I mean Nolan um when he when he was brought in by Allardyce and he began performing, he would he sort of recognised he would always get to the second ball. Always. Like, there wasn't anybody in the league at that time who was hungrier to get to the second ball. And then by bringing in Davis, Allardyce made sure that Bolton generally always won the first ball as well. So they basically had two men at the front of the, towards the front of the the team who were always creating problems for defenders. And I think the difference, to to bring it back to what Pete was asking, is that I think the sort of the, the traditional kind of long ball lump it up kind of thing is it's mostly speculative you just kind of you're lumping it up there to try and maybe sort of cause some problems and I think what Allardyce took it a little bit further it was a bit more scientific than that because he knew it would cause problems and more to the point he had worked out where it would cause problems and where his players needed to be to take advantage of it um and he, he was all he was always looking to take advantage of these situations. There was um, I can't remember which year it was, but they changed the offside rule, um, 
or they sort of tweaked it so that it was only players in in sort of who were deemed to be in active positions who could who could be ruled offside. I remember. So we that ended mess. up with Kevin. He, he ended up with Kevin Nolan marking the goalkeeper and basically stopping him from moving, even though he's in an offside position. And they scored from it, and the goal stood. And Allardyce said at the end of the game, it's like, I don't like the rule. It's a shit rule. But my job is to take advantage of it. And that's what we did. He was that he was that sort of manager. Like, he, he would do anything to, to exploit an advantage because he knew he wasn't working with, you know, the strongest of resources compared to, you know, an Arsenal or United or Chelsea. Um, but what he was very good at, and, and still is to this day, is getting the absolute most out of the, the squad at his disposal. And what's interesting I mean, is I that... Think, oh, sorry. So I was just going to say, I think any long ball team, you know, they know what they're doing. So I, I, I think it's probably a bit unfair to say any team that plays long ball isn't, you know, knows what they're doing tacti- tactically because they're going to work on that. But, I mean, you know, speaking as a very... supporter of a club who <laughs> probably plays a long ball game is, maybe I'm slightly biased, but it's... I, t- I take your point, like, that they there is always yeah. some sort of tactics to it, but, but again, yeah. I, I don't think there is. Allardyce introduced. There was a certain amount. What of I think is, you know, in 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 Davis, they had a player that's, you know, he's not Duncan Ferguson up top, is he? You know, he's not six foot four and just out to win. Uh, you know, it, it's not someone you look at and think this guy's going to win every header he gets. But he's going to win every bloody header he gets because he he's just that good in that position. He he knows how to get under people's skin. He knows how to win the ball. You know he's he's winning headers against defenders bigger than him, taller than him. He's just a really really smart player. And in that system, he, he was fantastic, absolutely fantastic. That's that's finding a player that plays to your strengths really well. It's but he also that- allowed them to play to. He also allowed them the luxury of, you know, as these sort of flair players who would who would come in a little bit later on, or you know, you know the the Jorkaevs and the Akotches and the and Campos of this world. You know, Nolan and Davis they worked their asses off every game. Um, it's worth pointing out that Davis doesn't really come in until after the Jorkaev stuff is that 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 period has yeah. kind of ended by then at that point Henrik Pedersen was doing a very similar job for them but uh, mm. not quite as well as as uh, Kevin Davis would go on to do he scores a lot of goals yeah, though Pedersen that season um, yeah it's useful very useful so uh, I was watching some highlights earlier on and he scored like a header from like 20 yards it was like what <laughs> but uh, yeah I think it's quite interesting that, that Big Sam now is obviously He's caricatured as the firefighter, like West Brom this season. You know, they're near the bottom under Billich. They sack Billich and they bring in Big Sam. Um, And, you know, where was it? Palace a few seasons ago. Um, I can't remember all the ones that he's been to now. But so he's become... Blackburn. Well, I mean, Everton, they've actually brought him in to actually managed from the beginning didn't they but yeah Blackburn was one Sunderland. wasn't it yeah Sunderland was the other one saved Blackburn after the disastrous Paul Ince experiment he, was, he wasn't brought in um, at the start from Everton he came in about November and they were sort of 13 oh that's right yeah yeah, yeah. he did get a whole season after that didn't he? he didn't just do his thing where he saves and then leaves no that um, was it one and I one th- and done 
yeah, I thought he was pretty much, even though he saved them, persona non grata at Everton. Because that, oh, that's that yeah. brought in. Did they not bring in Mar- uh, Cumin? It was taking over from Cumin, wasn't it? Oh, was it Marco Silva? Yeah, it's Marco Silva. Yeah, yeah it's Marco Silva. Yeah. Uh, but but you know anyway. so so, so the, the caricature is of him as a firefighter of course and that's something which has only really uh, grown up around him in more recent years because you know his whole thing at Bolton was that he built something that was incredibly long lasting and actually kind of very self sufficient and I, I mentioned Moneyball at the beginning I don't know if any if any of you have read Moneyball I've seen um, the I, film I, <laughs> yeah. there's there's quite a popular thing with with football manager um, players to try and recreate something similar in the game. So I've sort of seen a little bit of that. Yeah, I mean it's 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 well worth the read. It's it's basically the the story of yeah of how um, you know one of the the least well resourced teams in in, in Major League Baseball basically um, you know used analytics to to kind of um, compete with the big boys on a shoestring. And and it's kind of, you know, what what people like Big Sam and what people um, like Sean Dyche and, you know, various others over the years. Have, have, um, I mean, you could have said Eddie Howe until until recently. Yeah, they, they've managed to kind of take these unfashionable teams and actually um, find a way to compete. And and it is about finding players that uh, you think do a job in your system and finding the tactics to kind of to, to suit them and rather than kind of having you know i guess if you're at a, a a more traditionally successful club you can have a inverted commas philosophy and you can uh you know kind of buy buy who you want and just fit them into your inverted commas philosophy but you know if you're in the in the kind of mid to lower table you don't really have the luxury to do that but, but one of the really remarkable things about bolton is that not only did did he uh, manage to keep them up, he then managed to, you know, to really compete for quite a long time with them, and probably could have kept competing with them to this day had he not decided to leave. I suppose it's also worth adding that they were building something quite decent at Blackburn um, until an act of monumental self harm by the Venkies to sack him and replace him with Steve Keen. So those were the two, <laughs> the two jobs where he was actually going very well. And for one reason or another that they, they fell apart and then everything else has always been cut off short or as you say, that kind of firefighting thing. It's really hard to judge any of those because they're so brief or the, the, the remit is so small. The two places where he's actually had time to do anything, uh, you know, both went quite well. No, <laughs> I will. Bollocks, I'll have to cut that out, won't I? That's a podcast bombed. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I, I really, I really think that, um, yeah, the, the reputation of Allardyce has kind of obviously been harmed quite a lot by his public persona. I think that's probably why people um, don't give him the credit for the tactical innovation and for the, you know, the embracing of technology and the embracing of um, of analytics, because obviously he he started to be quite bullish in in the press with the things that he said. 
particularly the infamous if my name was Aladici, you know, everybody would put me on a, a level with the best managers in the world. That that kind of comment, you know, and if you think about stuff that he's come out and said recently, like there was this hilarious um, you know, how it started, how it's going, whereas like a newspaper article saying Allardyce, I voted for Brexit. And then him complaining he can't buy any players at West Brom because of Brexit. <laughs> um, so, so, like the stuff that he's come out and said publicly hasn't helped him. And then obviously the fake shake and the pint of wine and and the whole debacle around England tenure, you know, all of that as 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 obviously um, made him a bit of a figure of fun, which is which is a pity because you know as we've said he 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 obviously did a lot to revive a club that as Pete said at the beginning were one of the traditional powerhouses of English football and it's always good when you have a, a Bolton or we talked about Blackpool before I don't know if we ever get to Sean Dyche and Burnley it might be a bit too recent but but you know when you have these teams which were actually proper long-standing historical teams making it back into the top flight it's just such a good news story um, and we shouldn't you know, we shouldn't sort of take away from that. It's also an element of what we're saying there. The whole, if I my name was Aladici, I'd be a manager of the top four, I think the, the quote was, rather than considered one of the, the greatest managers in the world. Uh, if we're saying that his public persona is what stops people giving him the credit, he's sort of right to a degree. That's the, the funny thing about it all, is you do sort of think... So much, especially in those early years, maybe it's a little different after the last 10 years, but that first decade or so, it really was as much that he wasn't fashionable. You know, it's, you, his achievements at Bolton on that budget, I mean, you, you maybe can't compare them to, to Mourinho at, at Chelsea because even though the budget's astronomically different, he did deliver two titles and that's something different. Out, different. But you can sort of put it against almost anybody else in the league and say pound for pound what he did was phenomenal for like three or four seasons. And, and the thing that always makes me think about just how modern some of this stuff really was is when they miss out on promotion that first time and they do have to start selling players and there's no real money in those first few years at Bolton which is ultimately why he ends up leaving I think is, is the money doesn't ever materialize um, but in those first few years when he's there's very little cash he still has one of the largest backroom staff certainly in that second tier and, and you know a ridiculously large uh staff compared to some Premier League clubs while they're still shopping in the loan market and the free transfer market he realizes that having the people who welcome foreign players into the club and make them acclimatized and scouts and all that process he realizes that's actually more important than maybe spending a little bit more on a player that might not be that much better than what you can get on the loan market or the free transfer market anyway and he ended up playing that to perfection and and that's really the, the foundation of what you managed to build at Bolton but it, it it just shows how committed to that ideal he was that he didn't take the easy route that I think most managers would have which is we have very little resources but I'm going to spend all of them on on the playing staff I was interested I, I think he thinks he's he's much more intelligent than a lot of the managers around him like the, you've got people sort of throwing millions of millions of pounds at players who are unproven and end up not working 
and fine, he he does also do that from time to time. But um, he he thinks that he's he's doing it a better way. And I, I, one of the things that's always struck me about him is he's always very self-assured in what he's doing. Like, and I suppose his record, to to extent, speaks for itself. And the fact you know he's he's never been relegated despite having spent most of his career with teams in the bottom half of the league. Um, although he might be up against it this year. Um, but you're, you're right. I mean, he's he, he he spends an awful lot of money and time on that sort of behind the scenes area of the club. Like when they read when they rebuild the training ground, um, he's got a room that looks basically looks like a like a Wall Street office with um, like a Wall Street trading floor with screens everywhere and TVs and people working on on sort of. Um, player analysis and uh, performance analysis and everything like that. Um, whereas other teams would have spent, you know, five, six million quid on on, on another midfielder. I, I think, you know, he probably gets a bit of a... It's hard to say, does, you know, it does he get an unfair reputation? Because, you know, like you say, he, he's... A manager that, that that's changing the game, that's doing different things. Yeah, I think he's probably, uh, you know, judged certainly in the, at that early time on his his style of play. You know, essentially playing long ball. It might be a smarter long ball. It might be a more calculated long ball than 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 other teams. So I think a lot of people see it, see that, and you know, uh, maybe. It is the doing stuff on a budget as well that that, that plays into that. Do, you know, okay, you can do it on a budget, but you know, what are you going to do if you give him all this money? What's he going to do? Is he going to keep doing that? Is he going to know what to do with it? Is he know, going to know who to spend it on? That might be some of it, you know. And you could say a lot of that is very, very unfair on him, you know, because he's coming across as that very typical old school English manager, you know. That that's what he comes across as when he speaks and when you look at him, you know, that old school English manager, brown envelope in the back pocket, you know, <laughs> that that type of guy. And, you know, tactically, he's not like that. But then again, you know, maybe that perception was right, seeing what would, you know, turn up down the line when he when he got to the big show. Yeah, it is. It is like the, the difference where when you have an old kind of fashioned English manager. It's called closing down when you have a fashionable European manager. It's it, it's called pressing. And when you have, you know, you might be playing direct if you're a classic English manager. And but it it you get it. There's some concept that will be invented to describe it. I think it, when the Germans were playing quite fast counter attack, and it was called uh, as opposed to ticky tack, and they started talking about verticality. Uh, there's this thing about presentation that managers like Allardyce and his ilk. Um, have a, I suppose it's a PR problem, and as you, as you say, the pint of wine thing doesn't help. You know any of those kind of instances. He's he's not been a friend to himself in that regard, which is I think why he got overlooked for the England job in two thousand and six uh, in favour of Steve McLaren, who fit the the uh, FA brass idea of an England manager much better. Also, good Dutch accent, uh, Steve McLaren. Yeah, uh, excellent, <laughs> excellent. Still, still my favourite YouTube clip of all time. But I, I think you know the other thing with Alice to remember is that um, 
he the the chip on his shoulders that caused him to say those things is part of what made him successful as well because these managers and i think you can even throw someone like wenger in here certainly Mourinho, the the managers that that didn't have like absolute elite playing careers um they have to be so determined to make it to the top because unlike someone like frank lampard they can't just get a top managerial job you know based on who they are they have to earn absolutely everything and so when they talk to the press there is a spikiness about them and there is a kind of um sometimes a yeah a slight kind of um abrasiveness that that comes across because of the fact that you know they might be playing against managers that have about half of their kind of acumen but three times the budget and you know friends in the high places and i can certainly see how you know, as Alizice's career has gone on, when he's got bigger opportunities, things haven't quite gone right for him. And partially that has been a bit of self-destruction, but also he, he was quite unlucky with a couple of situations that he walked into, like certainly, you know, the Newcastle disaster and, you know, the um and, and the, you know, the Blackburn thing we just talked about. So, you know, it's kind of, it's 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 a bit of everything, really. What made him successful was that ability to, um, rise above his humble origins, but it's maybe also stopped him getting to that kind of very, you know, that very top, top club. Or when he did get the international job, he didn't keep it for very long. Yeah, that's the only one you can really hold against him, I think, where it's all his fault and you can't say much else. It's that England job. Everything else, there's always some sort of mitigating uh, factor involved the, the one thing i suppose i would just want to to add is that although that's the public perception and so the way some of his fellow managers seem to have seen him and the press seems to have reported him at times it doesn't seem to have been something that transferred across to the players because we spoke early on about how they managed to lure in world cup winner yuri jokaev and possibly the most you know exciting African football talent ever in JJ Akocha, you know. Um, they managed to lure Nicholas Anelka to Bolton for a couple of years there uh, in the Allardyce era. For, uh, the, the only real money he spent um, in, in this whole spell, the £10 million transfer. So top players wanted to come. And the one thing that they and Allardyce both agreed on publicly, which I think is, is hilarious, is the fact that it was Sam Allardyce that got them to go to Bolton Wanderers. Sam was never shy about saying it was me that got them to sign. Uh, but the funny thing is, people like Ivan Campo were like, yeah, he's right. I think um, he he had a, a habit of picking up players who maybe had something to prove. Um, Jorkoyev was, um, he had a big falling out with the Kaiserslautern manager, um, you know, a year before the World Cup. So the defence of, of France's World Cup was due to take place in the summer of 2002. He had this big falling out with them and he needed somewhere to go and play. And Allardyce has, you know, has recognised this and, you know, basically said, well, you'll get as much first-team football as you want. <laughs> Which I guess is what you want to hear at that point. And then he, you know, he, he's instrumental in, in keeping Bolton up that season and... and 
So it, I think, I think he plays. Does he play another season with them? Yeah, he plays another twenty-five games the season after. Well, I, I think the other the other thing about Jurkaev is that you know um, it's such a great thing as a flair player to go to a team where you know everyone's going to do the running for you. Because he was the he was the luxury player, so he got to basically stroll around and use his vision and his quality. You know, Dugarry did something very very similar at, at Birmingham um, mm. in the same time window, really. I think if I've got my timelines right, um, I think it was. I think wasn't that slightly later? Yeah, but not. It's like you know, I mean, the same sort of window of time. Yeah, yeah. Um, the same sort of two or three Total seasons. Era. Yeah. Um, you know that kind of that kind of thing where you've got a world class player at the back nine of his career. Just let them wander around and sprinkle some stardust. You know you don't need them to do any running. You've got a whole team of willing runners. That's kind of how they were set up. So that was kind of the beauty of it, I think. Yeah, and and you know don't ever underestimate how good Jor KF actually was as well. Go and watch Euro '96. You would swear he would be the star of that French team and not Zidane. You know, he was supposed to be, I think. Like, you know, looking back to, he, he was he, he was he, the one tip to be the breakout. Yeah, Euro Euro '96, he was absolutely amazing, off the charts, brilliant. You know, star of that French team in in '96. You know, and we're we're talking on the verge of that that French team going on to dominate the game. You know, fantastic player. It is worth remembering when we're talking about him that yeah, he was had these problems at Kaiserslautern, but he's the first one as well so when he comes in mm-hmm. it's with no one having gone before like him he's he stands out but he also then plays a part in selling that to all these other players you know i'm not sure a culture looks at bolton if shawkaf hasn't gone there and proven that you know this is a viable place to go and so on the one hand yeah sam allardyce does sell it to these these players but word gets around in football you know you see World Cup winners turn out for what is effectively a provincial team not too far away from, you know, one of the, what was two of the greatest kind of clubs in English football at the time and probably ever in Liverpool and Man United. It's kind of dwarfed by these sides. But all of a sudden, people at Real Madrid are looking at Bolton. And yeah, obviously that they were on the outs at Madrid or you don't ever look at leaving a club like that. But still, players that we're talking about would have had options. Yeah, you got to be persuasive to be a football manager, ultimately. And um, and and Big Sam managed to persuade you, okay, I have to give to give Bolton a go. And I think you know it was that period of time where lots of smaller Premier League clubs had at least one superstar. Like you think about people like you know that season that Carbone had at, at Sheffield Wednesday, and you know a few years before Brian Roy at Forest after they got after they got promoted again, and. You know, De Canio at Sheffield Wednesday, you know, so it's 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 like the Premier League did tend to throw up these stories of everyone having at least one foreign superstar. Um, but as we said, like, you know, having won the World Cup in in, in 2000, sorry, not 2000, in 1998 and the Euros in 2000, you know, Jorkaev was a was someone that brought a huge amount of experience, know how as well as the fact that he could still play. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing as well. And, you know, you've got to be persuasive as a manager. 
I'll tell you what, you wouldn't want to say no to a big Sam, would you? Like, even if you played for a big club, he, he's not the type of guy you want to say no to. Get a pint of wine in your face for one. I remember an interview he did with a magazine. It must have been 442, I'm guessing, um, where they asked him as the very last question about someone being overawed by their players. Um, I think it was talked about being overawed by Beckham or whatever. And they just mentioned this uh, thing. And then the, the question was to Sam, could you ever imagine being overawed by one of your players? And he, uh, and they documented his it like almost like stage directions in his answer as to how he answered it. It's like chuckles, no, starts laughing out loud, no, never. <laughs> just the, the idea of him being overawed by a, a player just made him laugh out loud. Just because, I mean, Ferguson's hairdryer was legendary, but you almost suspect there would be more menace behind Big Sam's. Yeah, and, and it, go, it goes back to the confidence, Ferguson, isn't he? Oh, go on, Matt. No, sorry, I was going to say I, I just I just think back to um, saying you know um, I've, I've lost my train of thought. Carry on. <laughs> Can we talk about some of the players he signed then? Because I mean, we've 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 spent sort of probably thirty-five minutes talking about Allardyce, but there was. There were some really class players that he that he brought there, and I think there's some unsung heroes to talk about as well. Stelios Janakopoulos. What a pickup that was! I mean, because it was was it 03, 04 he turned up. Sounds about and, right. And then when one won the Euros with uh, yeah. with Greece in 2004, and was really instrumental in that Greek team. Like he was one of the um, you know one of the real important players for them. I, he would. I think he was integral to that team. I think he was sort of, you know, if, if you you had the sort of the big three, didn't you? But I think he was probably sort of the the, the fourth in terms of like real quality that Allardyce managed to add to that team. Um, we've talked about um, we, we talked about a culture, but I think it's worth talking again about a culture because um, one, there's a video on YouTube of him absolutely. Having Ray Parler's pants down. If you haven't seen it already, go, go and have a look at it because I think it, you, the one in the corner where he flips it over his head. I think Arsenal were ahead. Bolton sort of come back to equalise, so it's two-two, and then he's just in the corner, just just pissing about with Ray Parler. And we, we talked about Ray Parler on this the show before, and he, he he was a good player, and he just made him look silly. And he had that in his locker. He was he was, he was fabulous. Uh, uh, Koch had skills for days. I mean, you know, if you talk about the most absurdly skillful player in Premier League history, he's got to be up there. And you know, we, we've seen players do some stuff. You know, I, I I go to Highbury and see Dennis Burkamp do absolute mental stuff on a weekly basis but you know stuff a gotcha could do with that ball it, it's Ronaldinho levels of what on earth are you doing my word how how on earth can you do that is that even possible it was never uh, excessive either it was always in the keeping with the game yeah yeah he's one of the, you know you wouldn't want him to have the ball when 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 Bolton are running the clock down that's for sure you know it's just you know you You'd imagine if he didn't want you to 
take the ball off him and he didn't want to try and, you know, get forward and score a goal. You could be chasing him around all bloody day. But he was he was great with the, the dead ball situation as well. He had great vision. Well, he was, I think he's one of the one of the greatest imports for English football. Probably probably because of the club that he joined. Um, and you know the, the fact he he still talked about it to this day, not just by Bolton fans either, by you know fans of the, of, the, of the Premier League in general. If we're talking about um, uh, players that they managed to pick up and defied expectations, I think you've got to mention Gary Speed at this point as oh, well. I'm still, I'm still annoyed about that. Newcastle sell him on it, I think, about the age of 35. Uh, about 400 on, grand or something. <laughs> uh, yeah, closer to a million, but less than a million, I think. And it's one of those where it's like, well, Bolton would be lucky to get a year out of him, I think, at that, at that age, especially as you know, he was always an enthusiastic runner to go along with all his other attributes. And maybe they thought at that, this age he isn't going to have too much longer of that. He plays for about four years for Bolton. Yeah, and, I th- and that season, that first season he comes in, they've qualified for the UEFA Cup, I think, and uh, they stick him and Fernando Hierro in the centre of midfield and everyone, everyone else just runs around them. Another one of Big Sam's uh, tactics of taking technically gifted defenders and putting them in midfield. Uh, I remember the thing I read that he said to Campo when he said, I've never played in midfield before. It was, ah, it's England, you'll be fine. <laughs> it's true. Like, I watched a compilation earlier on of, of, of some of uh, well of some of Bolton's games, and Campo, his range of passing, like was absolutely unbelievable. Just you know, sending like forty yard outside the boot passes all over the place and running around, and it you know it kind of um, it kind of reminds you of of like David Luiz at his you know. In his better moments, do you know what I mean? It's yeah, it was he, he very went, fun he, to watch. He went from you know they signed him as what looked like a totally gormless defender for Real Madrid, and he'd obviously just been sitting there watching Gutty play the whole time he was there, which is why he didn't do much at Real. And he came in, and Sam was like, "Right, you can be Gutty now," and he's like, "All right then, I'll be Gutty." And yeah, he, that's who he turned into. He, he turned into an absolutely insane like guy with that mad passing range and Boston midfield and you know could do it from the back almost like that you know Mateus or Sammer style for German style defender sweeper you know defensive midfielder he could sit in any of those positions and was just like phenomenal of that team definitely the player that you enjoyed watching the most every week except the one that you were playing them uh, you hated him against your own team as a general rule. Maybe that was just me. I don't know. But uh, yeah, he always seemed to be wonderful, but could also put your back up in equal measure, which is a mark of a lot of these great midfield players, to be honest with you. I, I think Jasper Leinen was... Yeah, I was about to say Jasper Leinen. That is exactly who I was about to say. Because, <laughs> uh, I mean, every time they do one of these challenges, the, the Carragher ones that we spent all summer doing, it's always easiest to put Yaskalainen in goal because it's like yeah. he's a weird nation and a weird team. <laughs> so a like, fantastic <laughs> keeper. Yeah, and he was so good and so good for such a long time. Like 
his consistency, oh, you know, I always think like Mark Schwartzer is a keeper that, that nobody ever talks about enough as being incredibly consistent over a real long period of time. But yeah, Jaskalainen is one as well. Like he is, he was so, so good um, for such a long time. Signed by Colin Todd in 1997 for the discount bargain price of £100,000. It's a bit it's like he's the mini Schmeichel, isn't it? He's a mini, mini Schmeichel. Mini Schmeichel. You know, Schmeichel was, what, 600k by Ferguson and look what he turned into. And yes, Gliden, yes, similarly. Um, but that's the thing with keepers is that, yeah, you'll often find that the more you spend on a keeper, the worse your outcome's going to be. The, the the good keepers you tend to because I mean how much was Petr Cech when Chelsea bought him I don't think he was that much about um, ten million yeah I was only um, in recent years really where it you know it, the, the the price of goalkeepers inflated I mean I, I think even Bar Bartes back in what two two thousand was fifteen fifteen million something like that maybe even less than that. Then they, it's not until quite recently they've the, the clubs have been prepared to to spend like the massive um, fees that they do now. Um, is I also think, found it weird that Jaskalainen never got picked up by a bigger side. He did go to West Ham. Exactly. D- debatable, yeah. <laughs> <sighs> I mean, support base and all that kind of thing. They're a bigger club. Um, I don't think even Bolton oh, fans would but, argue but that. They've not won anything. Only because, <laughs> only because Allardyce bought him. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, Allardyce <laughs> took him there. Yeah, well, there's there's a few um, a few goalkeepers you can sort of say that about that were very good for long spells and just no one took the. I mean, Schwartz the is another one, but yeah, yeah I mean, it's a weird position, isn't it, a goalkeeper? You know, it's. It's all about confidence and staying in there and staying in the team, and you know you you, you get your run. I mean, you, you've seen it this year with with um, Martinez having that great run for Arsenal at the back end of last year, and you know that's prompted Villa to take him. And uh, by all accounts, he's he, he's playing really really well for Villa, and you know we were a bit upset about that. <laughs> a lot of Arsenal fans were because you know. It, it, it was a very strange situation for Arsenal, but you know it's uh, they've stuck with the bigger name, should we say? And it, it's looked iffy at points, but five clean sheets in a row. I guess right now it's not looking so terrible. Being a, top, a, a goalkeeper for a top side is also very different to being a good yeah, goalkeeper. Yeah, further down you might have to make one save a game, one big save a game. You, it, it's a lot more concentration, whereas you know, down the league, you're going to be throwing yourselves at balls all day. You know, So you're going to make a lot of saves. It's all about concentration, isn't it, higher up? And not all keepers can, uh, can switch to that. Also, yeah, bigger teams yeah. nowadays, oh. they need a sweeper-keeper because they play such a high line. So if you're playing a goal for Man City, or you're playing a goal for the Spurs, particularly, well, under, certainly under Pochettino, um, you, you need to have a keeper like an Edison or a Loris or Allison at Liverpool that's going to actually be confident enough to kind of make those mad rushes out of goal, you know, to play as a, to play as a sweeper, to, to ping balls, you know, pinpoint across the pitch. Whereas... You know, you're not asking Nick Pope to do that, are you? If you're Burnley, you're asking him to be a really good, a really good keeper that comes to crosses, shot stop, you know, is shot stops and um, 
you know, and doesn't let anybody down. So it, it's it's a bit different. And although Nick Pope has been fantastic for Burnley, I don't know if he'll go to a big club because I don't know if he has the attributes that, that big clubs prefer. And I guess it's one of the issues that, it, one of the reasons that Pickford, despite his many, many flaws, has kind of stuck in with Ancelotti at Everton is the fact that his distribution with his feet is very good. Um, and, and that's why Southgate likes him as well. I suppose in the case of Jaskolainen, that would only really matter when he got to be about 35. Because that innovation comes through in about 2009, 2010. So he, it may have affected him post-Bolton uh, when he went to West Ham instead of going to a, a top side. So. And, and it maybe stops him doing what Brad Friedel did in the in the twilight of his career when Villa took him from Blackburn when he'd been excellent for a long time. And then obviously Tottenham came and took him from Villa and he went on to probably the peak of his his kind of career in that sense. He was fantastic at Spurs, yeah. He's brilliant for us I mean, and, and Blackburn. He's brilliant for everyone but Liverpool, really. Yeah, he was just too young when he went to Liverpool, wasn't he? Yeah. The other player that um, Allardyce gets probably the best years in terms of his English career out of is El Hadjouf. Oh, yeah, comfortably. Because people hate, people hate, well, Liverpool fans hate El Hadjouf. Jamie Carragher um, hates El Hadjouf. Yeah, he does. <laughs> yeah, talk about him. He was an absolute mental case, weren't he? He was <laughs> mental. Like, there's, there's an air of the catch bio about him, I think. Um, I think I think you hated him even at Bolton, but when he was at Bolton, it was a begrudging hate rather than just outright hate because he was actually producing. The thing he, is, though, he, was he came in with such good will because obviously <laughs> it was it was it because it was hilarious that he knocked France out of the World Cup. Like everyone yeah. loved him for that, uh, and so when he went to Liverpool, everyone everyone kind of wanted him to succeed because it's like, oh, it's the guy that knocked France at the World Cup, and it was like, oh no, he's also. Horrible and spits at people. Yeah, didn't they also buy that? Don't they? They also bought Salif Diaw at the same time. Who <laughs> he was terrible. But he'd actually been the real linchpin of the Senegal team, and it's yeah. one of those classics where it just doesn't translate to le- outside of one World Cup where everything comes together for you. I mean, how many of those have we seen over the years? Yeah, plenty. Um. I think you know. I want to point out he didn't have a hundred percent hit rate though. So I'd just like to point out that uh, a little a little chat about Mario Jardel, who uh, came in for the oh three oh four season. Hundred and thirty goals in one hundred and twenty five games for Porto. Twenty two in twenty four for Galatasaray. Fifty three in forty nine for Sporting, and none in seven for Bolton. All appearances from the bench as well, and he. Um said after it's another one of my favorite kind of quotes where these foreign players have perceptions of the clubs. I've been at all these clubs like Porto and, and so on. It's, it's really hard to, to be at a club like Bolton and be like bench, bench, bench. I said, like, well, maybe that attitude is why you never got off the yeah. bench. To be it, it could be, you know, you look at him, he, he's, you know, not your typical Brazilian, was he? He was your big, he, he was your typical number nine. You'd have thought he'd a, He'd have fitting really well into that, you know, Kevin Davis type mould. He was the maybe, Falcao before Falcao, wasn't he? Maybe the story about Kevin Davis when he got signed is actually kind of illustrative about it because he turned up woefully out of shape. And Allardyce said something along the lines, I hear you're the Lager King. I, f- I forget the exact quote. And um, said, look, we can only sign you if you get in the best shape you've ever been in your life. And he goes to what they called fat camp with Ivan Campo 
uh, who'd been on holiday, <laughs> who'd been on in on holiday in Spain in the summer, and he turns up. Um, the quote is carrying a bit of timber, and Campo apparently said to this Davis, who's come in like two stone overweight, it's like, ah, don't worry, we've got three weeks, it'll be fine. It's like, Christ, what's going to happen for these three weeks? And they had them on the Atkins diet. They had them cycling up mountains. And Davis, the reason that he became the Kevin Davis of Bolton rather than the Kevin Davis of Blackburn was that they just turned him into this beast. And I don't know. I mean, maybe it's a cliche, a perception thing, but that doesn't strike me as Jardel's game somehow. The um, the Kevin Davis, he was called the Budweiser King, apparently. The Budweiser King. That's right. Um, and then it was like, <laughs> I, I think I'm more of a Peroni man, was the reply. Apparently, he... Um, he was told this, uh, he was called into Allardyce's hotel room um, and Allardyce was sitting on his bed in a dressing gown, smoking a cigar and drinking red wine, calling him the Budweiser King and telling him he, he needs to get his arse into gear. Um, I, I guess that's the, uh, the the motivation side of things, which, you know, is a, is a legitimate thing. I mean, I, I, I liked the um, the Mourinho quote to, to Deli Ali. It sort of didn't end up working out very well. But when he said to Deli Ali, like, are you Deli Ali or are you his brother? <laughs> Do you know what? I, I kind of hope like Big Sam fails at, uh, at West Brom now because you know I might be able to get him cheap as a personal trainer. <laughs> <laughs> it's a world away from like Wenger demonstrating his commitment to the cause by like living by the same dietary rules as he makes the team go under, though, isn't it? It's like I hear you, the Budweiser King, while I eat my takeaway and drink my wine. It's yeah. So well, yeah. He, he did it all the time. Apparently, he'd, he'd send them off for sort of you know sixty-kilometer bike rides, and then when they came back, he'd be sat there tucking into a massive English breakfast. He's, I, I think he, he quite enjoyed taking the piss out of people. To be honest, it is the sort of thing that on paper is fair enough because I'm not a professional footballer anymore, and I did all this three decades ago. But you wonder about the. I don't know the motivation side of it, the player management side. I guess he 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 he. he it's one of those things that you do, and it, it will it will motivate certain people, and it won't motivate certain other people. And he was in a position where he just keep the ones who are motivated by it. Um, yeah, and at Bolton, I suppose he was untouchable, and he could do that. Yeah, it's not unlike Brian Clough, is it? You know, like I think. Yeah, any manager that is at a club for a really long time and is able to develop this culture, they use it a lot, this word in America, don't they? They say, oh, you know, the culture. And he had the opportunity to do that. And it was his show and he ran it how he chose. And the the chairman, was it Phil Gartside, the chairman of Bolton? Yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah. You know, he basically knew that he had a great thing going with Big Sam and, and he... He let him do it the way that he was going to be successful. And if you look at any manager that's able to do that, you know, they 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 have a very specific way of doing things. And you could look at, again, Eddie Howe at, at Bournemouth, Sean Dyche at Burnley, um, Kerbishley at Charlton. You know, they all had the opportunity to do, to basically run the club how they chose with minimal interference from the board. And that's why they were able to stay in the league for a long time. Well, you say that, but I mean, I mean it, it's, it's maybe worth talking a little bit about the end of Allardyce at Bolton. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I discovered that uh, that interview uh, that he that he did discussing sort of the end of it, and 
the 06-07 season, the Bolton started particularly well. Um, they get to January and um, Allardyce has sort of deduced that they, they only, they've already basically secured survival from the Premier League. They only need another 20-odd points to make sure they get European football for the next season. But they need a couple of extra bodies in. Um, and, you know, with the right people, they might even go and challenge for the Champions League, which obviously would have huge upside for, for both if they if they managed to do it. And he went to the board and asked them to sort of almost advance the um, some of the money for, for next season to him so he could go out and buy these players. And they refused to do it. And at that point, Allardyce felt they, that he, probably for the first time since he joined the club, that they didn't share the same vision. That uh, they didn't share the same vision, and at that point, he he says, and this, and I must say, this is an interview with Allardyce. It's not been corroborated by anybody. And um, Phil Gartside, sadly, is no longer with us to uh, to uh, uh, confirm or deny this. Um, and at that point, he said, "Well, then I can't I can't do the job," um, and he'd be off at the end of the season. And they kind of agreed that he would see them through to the end of the season, and then. Um, he'd move on and um, the, the story gets out just before the end of the season. So he leaves sort of, I think, early May uh, with a couple of games to go. Um, all because Allardyce felt that he could achieve bigger things with Bolton and the board, the chairman, felt actually we don't want to do that. Perhaps scared off a little bit by what had happened to Leeds um, just a few years earlier, sort of chasing the... Um, that European dream when really the club probably wasn't set up for, to, to, to sort of achieve that year after year. Um, do we think that Allardyce would have made a decent fist of it at a big club? Depends on the club. I mean, Newcastle is a big club and he got the half a chance there. I think he ultimately paid the price for several factors at Newcastle that we're probably going to talk about in the next episode, to be honest with you. So I don't want to um, <laughs> go go too much into that now. But there are clubs that will not tolerate football of the, the kind that Sam Allardyce would play, certainly in the early days. Now, we don't know what would happen if Sam Allardyce got a club like that and had them four or five years and had the kind of budget of a big club, he might all of a sudden play a very different brand of football. He's never been in the position to demonstrate that he would. Um, But there are clubs that will not go through the teething phase, the development phase, to see whether or not what would come out the other side. Now, Newcastle, I think one of those clubs, he obviously had a similar situation at West Ham, who despite being a a big side with no real success history for the lack of a better description history to success, I suppose we're in the grammatically correct way of saying it. Um, well saved. Yep. He is, yeah, the West Ham have this kind of idea of the West Ham way that's always worked against it. Uh, I think Liverpool are a kind of club as well that worry to have by some miracle got the, the Liverpool job. He would have had much the same experience that Roy Hodgson had at Liverpool, to be honest. Mm. So, there are those clubs where it wouldn't have worked. I think somewhere like a Villa, he would have got a much more even-handed response, depending on how results went. Um, but 
Yeah, there aren't too I mean, many. With, aren't... with the greatest respect, to so Villa, I, just, I, I, I was just—I was just going to finish off by saying I don't think there are that many big clubs who've been down on their luck enough to take that kind of chance in recent years. Newcastle and Villa are really the only two that you would still say are big clubs. Even with his success at Bolton, like you know, he finished top half finishes, qualified for Europe. From where they came from, no, no, no chance he'd make a success. I mean, it's interesting that. Knowing his, like his, I suppose the sort of the more scientific approach he took to the, I know the football wasn't necessarily what those clubs would have wanted, but at that point, you, you couldn't argue he got results. Mm. And I don't think he would have done any worse if he'd, because um, roughly the same time he moves on, uh, it's, a, it's I think it's a year different, so it, they don't quite overlap. But had he moved on from Bolton to Villa when Martin O'Neill came in, I don't think he would have done any worse than O'Neill did. I'm not entirely convinced he would have done any better, but that's just one comparison of somewhere where he might have gone and it could have potentially worked out. But I suppose the question is, is partly would he have done all right at a big club where he would have run into exactly what he ran into at Newcastle and other managers have run into at other clubs. But the other question is, what if Bolton had, because I don't think it's a comparable with Leeds, what he was asking for. It was to start thinking like a club that wanted to challenge rather than yeah. to, to shoot for the moon. Well, that, well that's and, how he saw it. Yeah. Well, and and to be honest, it sort of seems like they may have been better off going that route because the kind of figures that I've heard talked about are what they ended up spending anyway to achieve a lot less in the subsequent seasons. I mean, the, the, the classic one is the transfer of Johan Elmander. It was cost more than anyone that Sam Allardyce bought in, and I, I don't even remember him really. I mean, do you know what I'd say here? You know, he went to bigger clubs, you know, and it depends what you mean by a big club. You know, he went to bigger clubs and that would have been a stepping stone to a bigger club if he'd uh, nailed it, you know. But the argument is Newcastle, Blackburn, West Ham, even Everton more recently, you know, they're all bigger clubs than Bolton. Ironically, he, he was offered the Newcastle job three times. He was offered it once when Bobby Robson was sacked. He was offered it after Sunes was sacked. And then finally he took it on when Rhoda was um, was dismissed. And it coincided, like, I think he was appointed about two days before Mike Ashley took over, which seems odd, actually, thinking about it, knowing if, if, the, if the owners knew they were selling up, why did they appoint you? It, anyway, it's a bit weird. Um so there was there was that as well, um, and I think if he'd taken it on at the time when Bobby Robson was sacked, it probably would have counted as this is a big club. You've got an opportunity here. By the time that he takes it on in two thousand and seven, we're very, you know, we're in the mud. Like we're we're doing a really good job of pretending we're not in the mud, but we are right in the mud, um, and it's only two seasons until we get relegated. So. Um, the, the, a lot of the damage has already been done at that point. Um, uh, but what I'm asking about really is his. He's he's made a number of contentions over the years that he, you know, he's right up there with, you know, yeah. He he said it about Klopp, didn't he? That you know, I could do what Jurgen Klopp did with that Liverpool squad. Jurgen Klopp couldn't do what I did with that West Brom side. Which is rubbish, drew, by the way. It's, it's absolute. <laughs> given that given that Klopp made his name taking Mainz out of the German second division and into the Bundesliga, playing the exact football that he plays in Liverpool, that's literally complete nonsense. 
He's delusional, is isn't he, when he says stuff like that? This is what thinks of himself. This yeah. is how he perceives himself. So, I like I, I think, like, if, given what he achieved at Bolton and the way he went about doing it and the, I suppose, the, the measures that he used, would that have been, you, you know, if he had been given a, you know, a shot at Liverpool when they, you know, when they were comparatively struggling or, you know, City in the early days of the, of the, um, uh, yeah, the, the the money that's coming now because he he was actually he he was actually appointed as Man City manager just as um, the Thai um, owner came in and they they binned him off um, at the last minute. I've forgotten that. I think the interesting yeah. comparison is is actually with Redknapp. Um, you know, because before Spurs, Harry Redknapp had never had a big job unless you count West Ham, which I don't. <laughs> so like I think like Harry got that opportunity to, to to manage Spurs in um you know kind of 2000 and 2008 2009 uh, you know he he got that opportunity because he kind of seemed like somebody that fit the club and it wasn't just that he obviously had a an, uh, he obviously had a, a good pedigree as a as a manager he also his face fit now, I can foresee. Can I just say very, very briefly? Uh, I've never had a better diss for Spurs than Harry Redknapp's face fitting. Um, and for it to come from a Spurs fan, <laughs> I just I think that's fantastic. He's like the success successor of, of, of El Tau, isn't he? He's got he's got that same vibe. I think that's why it, it kind of worked for him. But you know, I can foresee a slightly different timeline where someone like you know Daniel Levy being Daniel Levy, uh, you know, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't exactly. I wouldn't have been surprised, given that after the kind of um, Ramos thing fell apart, that it looked like we might get dragged into a bit of a dogfight. Do you know what I mean? I, I I wouldn't have been that surprised if they'd if they'd gone in that direction. It would have been a disaster because it, it you know just like with Graham, it's just a, a somebody that that doesn't match the philosophy of the club. But you know it would have been probably a horrendous experience to be quite honest. But it it's it's interesting to to, to kind of think that Redknapp got that experience or got that opportunity at Spurs just as things were about to get good. Uh, and Allardyce wasn't considered for it. So I think that's quite an interesting comparison. I think how you've got to look at it is this. You know, yes, timing is important in football. Things have, you know, as a manager, things have got to fall in place at the right time. The right job's got to be open at the right moment. But there's not just one big job in football. You know, he's had the chance at bigger clubs than... than Bolton and not done anything to the same level that he's done at Bolton and you know yes that might be down to his style and he's got to implement a whole you know a whole culture um, at a club but you know he's never done it and no big club's ever been like right we're going to take a chance on you and you know the one humongous opportunity he got to do it he blew it so he can talk all he wants about being on the level of a, of a Klopp or whoever, but you're not, mate. Sorry. <laughs> Jog on, you know. 
you're not. You've done a very good job uh, as a manager in the Premier League, but you know, to start saying you can do what Klopp did with, with that Liverpool team is, you know, I would think some, yeah, I would think someone that's that's done that, that that's gone out and changed the culture of a club and made them better. That's gone out and, you know, took some risks on some signings that have paid off big time. You know, I think for him to say that without actually doing that is, you know, laughable because then, you know, how many people have you got managing in the second and third division saying, you know, second and third tier saying, well, I could do what Sam Allardyce did. You know, plenty of them could say the same thing. I've done what Sam Allardyce did. Only on football manager. manager, But it's the same thing, isn't it? I mean, I think he's picked a bad target in Klopp because there's been a lot of times... A lot of times over his career where he said it and it's actually been true. In Klopp's case, you kind of look at it. Well, Klopp, as you say, uh, Neil, he did it with Mainz and he's got that track record. It, it's not the same thing as 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 some of these guys. Go I, after I, I, Pep and people might get on your side. You know, Pep's never had the hard road. You know, Pep's always had an amazing bloody squad and uh, a ton of money around him. You know, there are, there are guys who've only done it at those top. There are guys who've only done it at those top sides. That's true, and and Klopp isn't isn't one of them. And where I think he, you know, he, I can't knock him is that the club sides. He did get bigger clubs, but Blackburn is the only club bigger than Bolton where he got a fair shake for a couple of years, and then the Venkies kind of came in and just you know the, the, again it was that kind of the style doesn't fit, and I don't know maybe I've just. I don't like the the idea that you know style can't fit because uh, I always found them actually quite a decent watch, and I think there's a certain amount, or certainly is, is you know, is Bolton and Blackburn sides. Um, I always found them actually quite decent to watch, and yeah, there's a there's a there's a certain and his Palace team were 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 a decent watch actually. You know, he he did get some very good form out of like, like flair players like Will Sahar. Yeah, he, he did well at, at Palace to keep them up that year. But West Ham, he got four years. He was always fighting the supporters and the board and all that. It was it was a it was a firefighting operation that lasted several years basically. And he was brought in to bring them out of the second tier into the top flight. And he did it. He he dispatched the job as it was meant to be done. But he never, you know, you, you can't win people over if they won't be won over. It's, West Ham and his Newcastle roles are frighteningly similar, even though one lasted nine months and the other lasted four years. At Sunderland and Everton, these are much bigger clubs, and so is West Brom, to be honest. Bigger clubs than Bolton, but they were temporary things. They weren't a real shake. They weren't ever anything where you were going to get the chance to build something. And... <sighs> It's almost, I, I go back to what I said right at the beginning, which was the only one you can really hold against him where he got the opportunity and he messed it up himself is England. And he did so quite spectacularly. Hilariously, awfully, in the most obvious. Yeah, and in the most blatant way possible, which as someone who has defended him quite a lot over the years against accusations that people are a bit harsh on him, that was quite a, a, a letdown in some ways. I mean, you know, it, it, that's the thing, isn't it? I, I think at that point, he still had a big chance to, you know, leave England and get a big job after that, but he was never going to get a big job 
after that. And to be honest, I'm surprised he got any job in the top flight after that. So he's still doing pretty well for himself, you know. So I guess your arguments could be, you know, could he be Mourinho? I think Mourinho is probably the one you look at and say, you know, if he if he didn't come from, you know, if if he wasn't, you know, who he so obviously in your face was, uh, would he maybe get a bit bit more of a, a shake? I think that's when you talk about the comparisons about style and, you know, stuff like that, that, you know, coming from an English bloke, it don't look quite so good as coming from a guy from the continent with all the swagger that Mourinho brings with him. Um, that's not always football style is the point you're making there. Is, I, I isn't think it? W- w- it's worth saying though that Mourinho's uh, first Chelsea team and his Real Madrid team were both both played really good football. Like you can, see, I mean, I know people always think of his Inter team. I think as being the up the jumper team, and that's very much true. But but he didn't have have some very good footballing teams too. So I think I think Mourinho, you know, again, Mourinho gets slightly hard done by by the fact that. He gets remembered sure, for that sure. and, and that's you know, uh, and I'm not I'm not saying that that's Mourinho because I don't believe that for a second. But however, you know, uh, you know, I'd put them in 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 a similar league. Uh, I, I think it's probably fair to say that that, that Sam's not there. You know, the, the guy had Joel Kevin or Gotcha in his team. You know, you, you can't you can't be you can't afford two players like that if all you do is play long ball. You know, <laughs> you, you're not going anywhere. Um, However, you know, uh, uh, it's not the most attractive football in the world. And let, let's just say probably later Mourinho, you know. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, later so career Mourinho and, you know, I've not watched a whole lot of Tottenham this year. I don't, I don't think it's that bad at Spurs either. But, you know, with, with, with the players that Spurs, uh, Spurs have got, you know. But it's... I think it, it it's similar, you know. It, it, it's it's a world where big number nine's not really there. Although, you know, I bet a bit big Sam would love Harry Kane. Yeah. Do you yeah. think that? Um, I mean, obviously, big Sam's sort of struggling here, and and do we think that his his time is gone? I mean, he he was a very he's been a very innovative manager, but now everybody uses that. Every club's got analysts, performance analysts, recruitment analysts, analysts, everything like that. As long as teams, as long as has his advantage gone? I mean, I say as long as teams need uh, a relegation firefighter, he's always going to have a job. And and I think you know, regardless of whether West Brom stay up, he he will get the call again. To to quote. You know, to quote Samuel L. Jackson, personality goes a long way, you know, uh, and Sam's still got that to his bow. You know, in a relegation dogfight, it's the type of guy you want leading you. Big, brash, loud, confident, you know, that goes a long way. And that's going to be infectious in a squad. You know, there's there's no two ways about it. So, you know, despite everything I've just said about him, you know, I'm only talking about him at the elite level there. I'm, I'm only talking about him among the Champions League uh, of managers, you know, to be a guy, you know, battling relegation, even mid-table in the Premier League, he's probably still got quite a bit to offer, you know, because he does have a lot, he he does have a lot of talent, you know, Uh, anything that I've said about him, 
at the top level doesn't doesn't relate to his ability to manage as a Premier League manager because you know he's got a proven track record of being very very good there. I think I agree with with the lads that as long as the uh, there's a team down, especially if he manages to keep West Brom up, then as long as there's a side down there struggling, then he will have people interested in bringing him back in. Where I think he may be yesterday's man to a degree is I don't ever see there being another Bolton or Blackburn where he gets the chance to have a long-term project. I suspect it's firefighting now until he retires. Unless he drops down the division and and can build a team back up again, you know, uh, at this point in his career, if that's... Well, yeah, exactly. At this point in his career, whether he's willing to do that, whether he'd want to do that, who knows? I don't think he would after the West Ham experience where he, that's exactly what he did and what was the the reaction was basically ingratitude. Um, why would you put yourself through that again when you can... I mean, he must be loaded by this point, even leaving aside the potential dodgy dealings of various parts of his career. He, he's been managing at the top flight on and off since 1999, I mean, he must be worth a few quid. So why would you put yourself through that? When he took the West Brom job, he said he was bored. So, you know, fair enough, really. Yeah. Well, there's certainly enough in this job to keep him busy, put it that way. Do we do Football Manager Online yet? He could make a killing at that. Is that a thing? Because that should be a thing. It is a a thing, but... um... Yeah, I, I suspect his uh, his should we say his his online persona might not go over well with uh, <laughs> with with the streaming community. Well, yeah, but but he, he that's who he'd be. Uh, everyone online is Big Sam, isn't it? Aren't they? So you know. Yeah, but they don't want it pointed out. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's yeah. It's, it's more we don't we don't play direct football. Yeah, it's poor form to lump it up to a big target man, a football manager, isn't it? I mean, when when you can, yeah. I mean, some, I mean, particularly this year, I mean, there's some of the stuff you can do with football manager now. You wouldn't want to be Big Sam. Someone might take Andy Carroll off their books, though, Joe. <laughs> well, I, I, I think he ends up on a free at the end of the season. So, I mean, I think he ends up lower league at that, uh, from that. But. Uh, uh, I mean, to be honest, what we'd give for Allardyce right now? Yeah, well, he, he so I was just going to say, you said earlier on that he was offered the, right, Newcastle, rally, right. the Newcastle job three times. He was offered it four times because they right. offered it after Benitez, and he well, turned you down. He turned you down flat. Well, at least I suppose at least he's got some principles. Not I many, it, but I think it's more that. Why on earth would you touch that with a barge pole right now? Why would anybody? Yeah. The desperate. That's the, pro- that's the problem. Steve Bruce. Again, you know, he, he's a man with nothing to prove, isn't he, isn't he, at this stage? So he'll pick and choose what he wants. Whereas West Brom, if he keeps them up, he's a, he's a West Midlands zero. Whereas if he don't, he's... Basically, we know he's been offered an absolute mint to go to West Brom because they think, well, do you know what? We'll give him a six-month contract. We'll chuck him as much money as he wants. And if he stays up, it's worth it. That's that, that's what they've done. That's what they did. That's what Everton did. Um, that's what Palace did. That's what Sunderland did. Um, and so far, he's got 
he's 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 four and zero, isn't he? Yeah, and that's it. You know, he's got nothing to lose because he just goes straight back into retirement. They've got nothing to lose because they were dead in the water anyway. I mean, that's it, isn't it? He's he's a man with both nothing to prove and nothing to lose now. I think he just loves the challenge of it. Like I, I, every club he goes into, he's 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 just there's a challenge. There's there's, and I, I, you know, it's it's someone he he loves numbers. He loves sort of being able to sort of go right. Well, we've got to score this many points in this amount of time and um and maybe to him that's actually that's more interesting than trying to build you know a, t- a team that's going to challenge the elite because you still have to play the elite maybe you can write mike Mikel arteta's interviews next year <laughs> I mean, you can give the percentages on the chances of him winning against spurs away <laughs> yeah that, that was such a bizarre interview I was convinced uh, it, he was gone by It was the ram- ramblings of a mental man that was about to lose his job, but he's turned it around. Fair play to him. <laughs> I mean, I just can't wait for Mikel Arteta to start referencing Brexit in his interviews, if that's what happens. But the other way yeah. around. <laughs> you've got to really worry when his hair starts to look out of place. That's when you've got to worry about Arteta. Do you think that happens? Big you know, Big Sam's looking a bit more stylish with the hair at the moment, isn't he? He's kind of gone for a, a more modern style recently. Oh, we've got into the weeds. We're point now. We're talking about Big Sam's manager's hair. hair. Yeah, absolutely. Let's uh, let's let's take it home. Right. So, are there any last? observations about uh, we've kind of cycled into the big sam more generally but let's cycle back to the bolton team because that's what we started out with that's the the team that he had 371 games with or some ludicrous statistic uh winning more than 40 percent of them and they were a real fixture of the premier league for that that decade uh, of 2000 to 2010 so last thoughts on on that side i enjoyed them like they were they were real cat amongst the pigeons at that point um, in a way that I don't think another, certainly at that point, another club who had come up had really had really done um, in the Premier League. Obviously, since then there have been teams like, you know, Stoke have well lived inside Arsenal Wenger's head for the best part of a decade, and uh, Swansea came up and and did something similar. But I think it was it was it was fun to see a team who were built a different way who didn't just accept their fate and you know they they just kept trying to improve and i think that that was the sort of the enduring thing about bolton is that they they weren't satisfied with just staying up they wanted to go and do better and they wanted to go and get european football and they did it and they showed other clubs that they could do it too i had a lot more respect for bolton than i did for stoke that's all i that's all i'll say <laughs> about that <laughs> you know the, the, uh, yeah, you could say there were some similarities in the way they put themselves about and, you know, maybe not the most beautiful football in the world, but, you know, behind it all, they still had the Akotchas and the Jorkaevs and, and players like that, whereas, you know, Stoke had bloody... God, I don't even want to think about what Stoke had. Bloody Stoke. I guess I would. I guess I'd just say that um, I've got a lot of time for these 
uh, original um, original teams that forms the league, uh, gaining some, some some success after they've kind of had a, had some trouble. So obviously Bolton are, are back in trouble now. I've had a lot of financial difficulties uh, of late. So you know, I hope they hope they make it back up one day because it was it, it's always good to see teams with a proper history um up there in the premier league i get the feeling that one day i'm gonna have to defend stoke in one of these when we come to talk about them and uh, probably probably get bullied by man i'm gonna have to kill thing. you i'm gonna yeah. have to come have find to you and kill you people well, because people are just like people overreact to things. They don't see the the good in in some of these. And and Stoke, Stoke had they good tried acting. to throw the ball into the goal every week. <laughs> That's fine. Nothing wrong with that. But my point that I was going to make was that the reputation that Bolton sometimes had fit Stoke better in that sense that they were a very traditional. Bolton was just the classic English model played well to a degree. You know, they they had good wingers, good centre forward, and try to play that kind of football. Bolton, that was that was harsh on them. As we've said, they, they were more tactically sophisticated than that. They were more modern than that. And that's my abiding memory of them, is the number of times that people thought they were going to get turned over and actually they ended up doing a job on some pretty big teams. And it wasn't all, you know, just thuggery. They, they really did turn people over tactically sometimes as well. And I suppose that's my abiding memory. In a sense, they took what Martin O'Neill's team, had, Leicester team had done in the 1990s, but just dialed up the volume all the way up to 11 uh, and really redefined what the provincial club with a solid manager and decent resources could do. Uh, unless there's anything else, I think we'll probably uh, wrap it up there. Uh, next time out, we are, as we've just hinted a little while ago, going to be talking about the debacle that is the first 18 months or so of Mike Ashley's tenure at Newcastle, particularly focusing sorry. on the, <laughs> sorry, Joe, particularly focusing on the, I think they call it the three manager season. Um, yeah, finishing up with uh, with Alan Shearer, taking over from Joe Kinnear, who took over from Kevin Keegan. So hopefully you'll join us for that one, but uh, we've been four at the back.